happens when Jane's not back there on the piano right there. Forget what I'm supposed to do. Forget how to lead people in music. It's a good time. Um, so we'll be back in 1 Timothy this morning, chapter 1. And as you turn there, I'm going to pray for us. Uh, Father, thank you so much for your grace to us as your children. We pray, Father, that your word would help us this morning, that it be good for us, that you would teach us as your children to love you, glorify you. And Father, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would honor you and glorify you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so today we're basically going to spend our time in verse 18, a little bit of 19. And so I'm going to read just a last little snippet of 1 Timothy 1. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. We're going to spend uh, at least two weeks here in this little passage um, because this really is the nuts and bolts of what ministry is in a church, what elders and pastors do. And it's really here that you see Paul's charge to Timothy in in its fullness and and the difficult nature of what, what elders and pastors are to do. Now, what we generally think of what pastors are supposed to do is to talk about sin, to talk about judgment, to talk about hell, to talk about heaven, to talk about Jesus and his grace. And we generally think that he should talk about sin and judgment and hell for kind of everyone outside the walls and about Jesus and his grace mostly for us and that there should really nothing be crossing the borders. And you see this all the time, right? I could spend most of my time uh, talking about politics and lambasting the left and the right for various and assorted sins and failures. I could spend a lot of my time talking about local politicians. I don't know very many yet in Jasper, um, but I could talk about the ones up in Bloomington and how they are not doing a good job or they are doing a good job. I could spend a lot of time talking about national sins, and I will from time to time. Uh, we will absolutely talk about the horror of the, the sin of abortion and its decimating effect on our nation, morally, spiritually, and just numeral. Like we have millions, 60 million less people than we should at this point since 1973. That's a, that's a large chunk of our population, okay? So we will talk about those things, but most of the work of pastors and elders is to deal with people here, in the pews, in the homes here at the church, because you are who have been entrusted to pastors and elders. I, if I'm to come here, and according to what I have heard from these last couple of meetings, I hope to come soon. We have votes and things to make it official, and I hope that happens in a month or so. 
But I am excited. Sarah's excited. The kids are beyond excited because they don't know what it means to maybe be moving somewhere, but you know, have to wait for that kind of event. They're, they're like, so we're, we're not going to leave Jasper anymore, uh, kind of a thing. Uh, I will be your pastor. When we have elders finally established here, they will be your elders. They will not be the pastor and elders for everyone else in the town, in the county, in the state, in the world. You have been entrusted to whoever your pastor and elders are by God. And that is a high, high calling. And it is an often neglected duty. And the reason it's neglected is because a lot of what passes for pastoral instruction is mostly book learning of theology. You probably have experienced this through the years, that there are pastors who have come and gone who maybe know theology but have no idea how to take care of you, no idea how to care for you as their sheep. And this is John, I, I wrote this quote down. I read, so just so you know, uh, I read John Calvin before every sermon. And uh, John Calvin preached through the book of First Timothy 500 years ago. And somebody, John Calvin uh, didn't have notes. And he just had his Greek New Testament and his Hebrew Old Testament. And he translated into French by reading the Greek and translating on the fly. And then someone in the audience took shorthand notes and wrote those sermons out. And he preached multiple times a day, multiple times a week. And someone, thankfully, was there to record him preaching through First Timothy. And it's two books together about this thick. So I think I can probably do it in less time than John Calvin, but not much less. It might be like this thick. Um, but John Calvin has been an extreme help already. And this is a quote from his sermon on this passage. Uh, when he says, uh, when Paul says that by them you may wage the good warfare. And why would Paul use that kind of language for pastoral work? Warfare. And John Calvin says, it's as if he's saying that those who have to preach the gospel are deceiving themselves if they think they can execute their office quietly without gainsaying and do nothing but expound the scriptures. I'm just here to preach. I'm just here to teach. And Paul says a good, or Calvin says a good chunk of pastoral ministry is gainsaying. It's an old word, right? Gainsaying means denying, disputing, contradicting, basically correcting. It's the it's the necessary counterpart to positive instruction, right? If you're learning math and the teacher writes the thing on the board, whatever it is, and you copy it down, that's positive instruction, right? That's teaching. But there's the flip side, right? There's you doing the work and then the teacher grading it and saying, you got this wrong and this wrong. You need to correct these things. That's gainsaying, that's contradicting, that's denying, that's disputing that you have, in fact, done the thing. And that is, one, not a, not a fun job for anyone to do. 
And it's not fun for anyone to receive that kind of feedback when it happens. Even on things as simple as math or reading or whatever it was, you, as, you're, as a student, you always dreaded getting back the paper that you knew you didn't get what, do well on. You always dreaded not doing as well as you thought you did. That's true in the Christian life as well. We will never be perfect, ever, on this earth. When we are dead or Jesus returns, we will be made perfect in an instant. Thank God for that. But here, our duty, our warfare, the warfare of a pastor, the warfare of elders, is to fight and dispute here. To make sure you and I get there. Okay, this is explicitly stated by Paul in um, chapter 4 of 1 Timothy. So this is Timothy saying similar things. Do not neglect the gift you have. This is Timothy. Timothy, don't neglect the gift you have which was given to you by the prophecy by the council of elders laying their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. So part of the elder and pastor's duty is self-discipline. Self-awareness of sin. I, your elders-to-be, must be men who know themselves. Not sinless men, but men who know their sin. And they have to be improving. So if I came here with some sin that you knew and I knew, and in 50 years I was worse off than I am now, I would have failed as a pastor. And this is why. Keep a close watch, Timothy, on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So this is not just necessary work that a pastor and an elder does for you, to you, with you, to discipline This is necessary work for elders and pastors for themselves. Our job, pastors' jobs, elders' jobs, is to watch ourselves and our teaching and to watch you and your teaching, what you say, what you think, what you believe, how you act. And when we see things that are out of line with the course of godliness, to correct, to gainsay. Now, we are to do that and Paul talks about how to do this later in various ways. So you don't have to just come down with a hammer, right? If your math teacher, every time you got a wrong answer, came over and punched you in the face, you would probably pretty quickly drop the math course, right? You would not want that kind of math teacher. The same is true of a pastor. If the pastor only has one way of rebuking, one way of correcting, one way of exhorting, it's like the guy, like the saying, right? You have a hammer, to a hammer everything is a nail. A pastor is not to be a hammer, but he has to know how to use one. He has to know how to use a screwdriver. He has to know how to use tweezers to extract splinters. 
These are all necessary things in the day-to-day of work, of warfare. You have to know how to treat people with gangrene on the battlefield. You have to know how to treat people who have had their legs blown off on the battlefield. You treat them differently. You have to know what to do if a guy is experiencing shock as opposed to a guy who's just scared to move. Those are different things. Someone who's in shock, you're not going to be able to persuade. A guy who just is scared to move, you might just have to get forceful with him and push him out. And then once his feet are moving, he'll go do the job he was trained to do. Those are all different skills, all different tactics, and they're all necessary. This is what the good warfare is. This is what you need. You are not here to be led into the battle of righteousness for your souls by someone who doesn't want to fight. You need, just like we talked about last week, Neville Chamberlain did not want to fight. And so Britain nearly lost the war as quickly as France. And then finally, finally, Neville stepped aside. Winston retained, did you notice, he remained on the war council, Neville Chamberlain. But Winston Churchill took the reins and said, no, 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 we need a guy who knows what to fight, how to fight, what the tactics are, where we are weak, where we are strong, where we need help. And he's not afraid to say it, he's not afraid to do it, and he's not afraid to ask for the help. This is the difficulty. Because when Paul says to Timothy here, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, what is he talking about? What does he mean by this charge? What has he told Timothy to do? Who's a young man like me? Verse 3 of chapter 1. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia... Remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. What does Timothy have to do for the sake of the church in Ephesus? He has to go up to men who are older than him, probably, who have lived in that town, who have been part of that church, and say to them, Enough. Stop saying those things. You're disrupting God's people. Now, we may like to think of ourselves as brave, able to handle that kind of confrontation. But the reality is we all know that even if we know we have to do it, none of us wants to do that kind of thing because it's hard Emotionally, to say to someone, you're wrong, stop. And we know that there will likely be fallout from that action. There will be prices to pay when that action is taken. Now, thankfully, you have had men, they're not elders by title or ordination, but you have had men through the years who have done this. When things happen in the PCUSA that the sheep you felt threatened by and uncomfortable with, what had to happen? Men had to take the lead 
And they had to say no to people. We will not do that. We will not stay. We will keep our building. Thank you very much. Now, it looks easy if you tell this story 10 years from now, how easy it was to leave the PCUSA and to come out of it. But you all know that we're here, that it probably was very difficult, both emotionally, to leave a denomination you'd been with your whole lives, to leave relationships behind. There were probably people in this church, I don't know for certain, but I'm, I, it would surprise me if this didn't happen, that knew this church, attended this church, and were upset when you left the PCUSA. And they were probably friends of yours. It cost you friends, emotional relationships, but it was good and necessary. It was for you. And you need men who will do that sort of thing, no matter the cost. And so here is Paul charging Timothy Go tell these men to stop. Do it, Timothy, because this is the good warfare that you must wage. This is your charge. This is what you must do. And then Paul references this idea, well, not this idea, this thing that had happened. In accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, he says the same thing in chapter 4, that... Don't neglect the gift you have, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. That something unique happened with Timothy. And we don't know exactly what it was. Paul doesn't say the, the prophecy XYZ. He just says the prophecies. The things that were said about you when you were ordained. When the elders laid their hands on you and commissioned you to go take the gospel... There were specific things they said about you from God. And you have to rely on that to go forward and do your job. Now that's unique. It's unique amongst the ministers of God. There are some men throughout scripture who have prophecies made about them. And by prophecy I don't mean necessarily prophet, but men like Paul, who when Jesus appeared to him said, I will show you how much you must suffer for the sake of my name. So Paul knew, going into Christianity, my life will be explicitly suffering, special suffering, unique suffering. Likewise, Timothy has something that he has been told at the beginning of his ministry that will help him now. And so what does that do for us? We don't know what Paul, the prophecy was for Timothy I have not been given, just so you know, any specific prophecies um, about myself or my future. But when, hopefully, I'm ordained by the presbytery, they will commission me to do the same sorts of work that Paul was calling Timothy to. That even though Timothy had specific things, we all have general things. And we have to Be willing to endure for the sake of the gospel, the hard things of warfare within the body of Christ. Because the aim of it, right, we learned early on in chapter 1, is love that issues from a pure conscience and a sincere faith, right? Now look down 
here, 1 Timothy 1, 18 and 19, he says, I entrust you, Timothy, this charge, wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. What is the end of spiritual warfare? Faith and good consciences. That's what Timothy was aiming for, for himself and for his people. Faith and good consciences. You want to have faith for God to continue to do what he has done. Just save sinners. And you want to have a clear conscience that your sin has been taken clear of at the cross. And so even when the rebuke, the denial, the dispute, the contradiction comes, the reality is that your conscience should at the same time be helped. That when you're corrected, when you're rebuked, when you're exhorted, that instead of buffing against it like a rebellious child, you receive instruction with grace, knowing that it's for your good. We all do this. We all don't like instruction that is hard and difficult. Some of us are more bullheaded than others and take a harder stick for correction. That's true of me throughout my life. Um, I was a disobedient kid. I was thrown out of preschool and had to repeat preschool almost twice. I was four and five. I'm the only grandkid who has been spanked by all of my grandparents, including my grandpa who had had a debilitating stroke and could barely move. All of my aunts and uncles have spanked me. Several of them have broken yardsticks. I was a terrible kid. I had to be corrected all the time with extreme unction. The most memorable that I remember specifically is when I threw a rock in our driveway during a rock fight with my siblings. My brother is five years older than me. I was about five. So he was about ten. I still maintain it was an unfair fight. Well, we had, it was a new house, right? So it had the great big, uh, like, number threes in the driveway, big old. Well, those were supposed to be off limits during the fights because we knew that throwing large rocks at each other was not a good idea. So you're supposed to throw pebbles. Well, my brother was five years older than me, so I thought it was a fair assessment that I should get to throw a big rock. So I picked up one of the biggest ones I could find, threw it at him, broke his head open. Not a good thing. My dad rarely spanked me. My mom spanked me often. They both spanked me before they took my brother to the hospital. And then my grandparents from down the road came down, and both of them spanked me. And then when they got back from the hospital, my mom spanked me again. And I probably would have still thrown a rock that day. That's the kind of bullheadedness I had. That continued on into my faith with Christ. What did it take for me to be corrected in godliness? Big, big wallops. Life-altering rebukes. Public humiliation due to sin 
and injustice on my part. Now, hopefully, hopefully you are not that. We do not want to be having constantly to bring out the big sticks of discipline. What we want is a people who desire godliness for each other and for me. So that when we say to one another, I don't think you should say that or do that, we don't take it personally as an affront that we are not a Christian. We take it as an actual statement of faith that we know that you, as a child of God, can act and think differently. We tell each other no because we believe that you can change, that the gospel actually changes us. So how do we see this played out in the churches early on? We tend to idealize you know, the time right after Jesus and think like they, they enjoyed some like long-term fellowship and peace and it was always sweet. Like they were always just sharing everything they had and nobody had any disputes that needed reconciling and there was no egregious sin. And then you read the New Testament letters and you go, no, they were chock full of, this is the church, this is people inside. Not the people outside, this is people inside. Full of unbelievable sin. So this is 1 Corinthians 5. This is a notorious example of the kinds of sin that were happening in the early churches. Ten years after Jesus, there was a man who was having his father's wife. And everyone in the church knew it. And they sat on the front row. And the church said, Look at how much grace we have. Aren't we gracious to let them just come? We don't say anything to them because we don't want to feel unloving. This is what Paul says to them in verse 6 of chapter 5. Your boasting about how gracious you are is not good. Can you imagine getting that kind of a letter from an apostle. So you have a church, right? There's an egregious sin happening. Everyone knows it. But because we're just full of grace and love, we all just endure it. We just let it go. This can be a thousand different things. It doesn't have to be a man having his father's wife. It can be a family with completely out of control children. Everybody knows it. Nobody says anything. Why not? Well, because we just endure, we're gracious, we love them, we're glad they're here. They have a responsibility as parents to raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And if they're not doing that, we, as a church, have the duty and obligation to say to them, Joe, Sarah, I don't know exactly what the solution is, but we need to think about this problem. Your son, your daughter is out of control. You should probably feel a little bit uncomfortable because can you imagine actually doing this? It's really difficult work, but it is necessary work. And to boast that we're not doing anything is foolish. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven 
leavens the whole lump. A little bit, the whole thing goes rotten. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. Cleanse it out. Paul's saying, I know that you are unleavened. You are in Christ. So just do the difficult work. Do the hard thing. Do the thing you're required to do. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And then here's the kicker. Because we think, okay, okay, I can do that somewhat. Um, And I've seen this in churches. One of the churches I was an associate youth minister in, um, there was kind of a, a, a ditzy woman who was in her mid to late 40s, had some kids, they had some problems. Um, this woman was poor, had not been in the church for very long. And there were lots of members of that church who had been there their whole lives and were very wealthy. And the very wealthy members didn't like this woman because she was causing problems, but they didn't want to deal with it. They didn't want to come alongside her and say, listen, here's what's going on. Let's get you some help. Let's help you think about what you're saying and doing with your son. Let us help you grow in godliness. Instead, they said, we don't want to deal with this. Get rid of her. And so what happened? The pastor told her not to come back to church. All the while, other things were happening that I knew about as the associate minister, and I was telling the pastor, you need to take care of this. You need to take care of this. Don't you see this? And he was all the while saying, I don't feel led to bring that up to that person. Direct quote from a pastor about a man who denied the exclusive nature of Christ and taught it regularly at the church. A man who taught, you do not need Jesus to be saved. The pastor would not go say to that man, you may not say that. Because the pastor didn't feel led to say it. I can say with absolute assurance that pastor is no shepherd of God. He threw out the one who needed help. And he refused to help the one who needed rebuked. He's a bad shepherd. Here's what should happen. This is still in 1 Corinthians 5. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Like, oh, no problem. Listen, I know my neighbor... She has affairs all the time. I don't go over and talk to her. No problem. I don't need to associate with sexually immoral people. Check mark, Paul. No problem. Then he goes, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. He says, I don't mean don't talk to the sinners on the corner. Because... That's impossible. You couldn't function in the world. You'd have to completely leave it if your goal was to never talk to a sinner. He says, this is what I meant. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is claiming to be a Christian. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? 
Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is the difficulty of the church. We still, as Christians, sin against each other and against others in our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds. And faithful ministers will help us to stop doing that. We'll say to you when you have done it, don't do that. Don't hurt your brother like that. Don't hurt your sister like that. You're saved. Act like it. And there are lots of ways for that to happen, right? Some of us need a big stick. Some of us need the encouragement. No, 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 that's not the way. And so what happened in Corinth? What was the outcome? Well, they did it. The church got the letter from Paul, repented, and said to the man, you say you're a Christian, you're sleeping with your mother-in-law, or your, your dad's wife. You can't do that. Either stop it, or get out. This is this is Paul writing to the Corinths, the people in Corinth, um, praising them for being faithful, but then saying, "Okay, he's endured enough." Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test and know you, whether you are obedient in everything, Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. And so the second half of this is when someone is sinning egregiously in the church, and it comes to the point of casting them out. We must also be very quick to forgive and welcome them back. This happens at the small scale, right? Because little spats happen all the time. So-and-so says this, and I say this. and We need to be working on those sorts of relationships so that we don't get to the point where someone has to be cast out of the church. And this is where the mistake is made a lot of times in churches that want to be faithful, is that we think of church discipline as this thing at the very apex of sin. But church discipline starts here, personally. Me, personally. You, personally. Self, 
discipline of yourselves. That's the first stage of, self, of church discipline, is to know yourself, know your sins, and be repenting of them. The second stage is when you sin against someone and are rebuked by them. And it should basically be those two stages that we mostly live in as Christians. We should be okay and willing to accept correction and rebuke from our brothers and sisters. Because if we don't, then comes the third stage of church discipline, taking it before the body, which is usually considered the elders. So now the elders are involved, trying to manage the dispute, trying to make it so that two people who have sinned against one another can come together again as brother and sister. So now we're three stages in, and we have not got to excommunication yet. Church discipline is personal before it's public. And we have to maintain this. And so what the pastor's job is, is to help us maintain that. So that things don't get blown up into, all right, now we're at the point where there is no choice. You have to be excommunicated because you won't say you're sorry. You won't ask for forgiveness. You're not repentant. What we try to do is say to each other, be self-disciplined. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, individually. And then when sin comes out, be willing to accept rebuke. And then if it gets to the point where the elders and pastors are involved, conflict resolution is the warfare of the pastor. Okay? More than just preaching good things about the gospel... My work is to shepherd. It's to get you to good ground so that you eat well. It's to make sure the predators stay away. It's to ensure that you don't bite and devour one another. That's Ephesians 4. We have to be dedicated, not just one guy in the pulpit thinking this is a good idea. But we, together, as a body, as Christ's body, all of us under him, have to be dedicated to this idea for one another to get to the end. That's our goal. And so we cannot just make this, um, and this is the temptation, and I don't know how to address this with you, and so... The temptation is, you're a small body of 18 members. And I'm a youngish man with a young family. And the temptation is going to be that I'm the guy who can turn things around, or I'm the guy who can help the next generation come. But that's not true. You... You are Christ's body here. You. And it is your dedication to this, not just mine. Now, I will come, and I will come just like I have been, with a heart full of love for you and love for your town. But you have to do the same. So you have to be thinking now, right now, What will we do 
when a couple with young kids comes? How can we help them? What will we do when more couples join who are middle-aged? How can we help them? This is all of us together. And I, we, we have the temptation to think if we just get this vibrant ministry guy, then it's all going to change. Now that can help things, but it won't change much without you. Without you being dedicated to helping one another get to the end. The warfare that we wage is together. I cannot do it alone, and you cannot do it without a leader. That's how warfare is lost, right? Knock off the officers, win the battle, right? That's why it's considered bad play. That's not why you're not supposed to do that in warfare. Because you want to have fair play. You want to have fair battle. You want to have war that is men against men. So you want leaders who are good and will walk into battle. But you also want soldiers who are willing to fight to win the battles. And you are those soldiers. You have been those soldiers. You are here. I don't know all the history of what happened in the last 20 years since this building was built. I know it couldn't have been all that pleasant. 20 years ago, you had enough money and enough people to build this. Today, we don't. Things happened in the middle. Difficult things. You are here because God has put you here. And he's put you here because you are his church. You are the First Presbyterian Church of Jasper. There is nobody else who is this church. And so if you are dedicated to doing the good warfare of fighting for one another then God will be pleased with the church here. If, however, we think that this is not what the church should do, God will be displeased with what we do here. So this is our charge from God's word, that together we fight the good warfare, that we work to make sure that everyone holds fast to the faith and has a sincere, clear conscience. That is our job. And it's a good job. Comes from God himself to his children. He says, do this, and I will say to you, well done, good and faithful servant, and more than that, well done, daughter, well done, son. That is what we have. Let's pray this morning. Father, thank you so much.